A single better day in a classroom for a kid goes a long way. And those small things very quickly can add up to a new sense of what it means to walk in and engage with learning every day. Hey again, everyone, and welcome to another Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, your host, and in this episode, Bruce and I chat with Stephanie Rogan, author of a great new book titled Creating Schools That Thrive, A Blueprint for Strategy. And like the title implies, it's a roadmap for schools who are on a journey to create mission and vision-driven change that's relevant for modern times. Stephanie's work with schools around the world is deeply focused on the importance of common language, how to utilize design thinking in a change process, and how to build cultures that support innovation. She also talks at length about how our current narratives and structures about schools get in the way of change at all sorts of levels. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Just a quick reminder that this episode is being brought to you by Change School. If you're looking for a powerful professional learning experience, that can help you understand those challenges to school change even more deeply. Our eighth cohort of Change School starts in mid-June 2019. You can get all the details at change.school, bring some friends, or even a team from your school to make the learning even better. And finally, don't forget that our first Modern Learners course on the topic of reimagining assessment is already online at modernlearners.com assessment. And you can check out all the resources, programs, and events that we're offering at modernlearners.com. But for now, hope you enjoy this conversation with Stephanie Rogan. Cheers, everyone. So Stephanie, it's great to have you with us here to, uh, today to have a chat. We met, I think it was three years ago, actually, at our mutual friend, Lisa Brady's school in uh, Dobbsbury, New York. And we were both on a panel for a viewing of most likely to succeed for a group of parents. And that was a really interesting night. I remember some of the conversations that we had following that, but it's, uh, I've been kind of following your work since then, and, and I know that you came out with a new book that we're going to talk about just a few months ago, so we figured it would be great to invite you on the podcast and talk about your take on school change and some other stuff, so welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So listen, I want to start with the title of the book because I think it's really interesting and it's called Creating Schools That Thrive. And I have a real interest in language and in the words that we choose when we talk about education. So Mm -hmm. first off, what I would love is if you could just spend a little bit of time defining thrive for us. What do you mean when you talk about schools that are thriving? Yeah, I love that you asked that question because I was very intentional with that word. I felt like schools were always thinking about some sort of future state and they were talking about issues, both technical and what I would call sort of adaptive challenges in ways that often were disconnected from the student's experience right now. And when schools really focus on the student's experience today and the experience of all members of the community, the adults too, that's where the outcomes our greatest, right? We, we've got to be in the present tense with schools and we, we, we can't afford to not think about what's happening today in, in when we think about the future. We have to think about them together. And so I really wanted to bring language that was active and immediate to schools. We need students who are thriving right now. We need adults, educators who are thriving. And then we need institutions and communities that are thriving. And in, and in those, we have the conditions for change. 
So when you say thrive, what does that mean? Does it mean doing really well in terms of going and getting into great colleges, doing well on test scores, or is it more kind of cultural? I mean, what is it? It's absolutely more cultural. I think that, um, you know, and again, this is a place where I've done a lot of thinking. If we don't attend to the conditions for success, it's very hard to have success, whatever you think success is. So the conditions are so important. And in, and in most cases, it's the culture that really creates all the possibility for a school, for better or for worse. So we want a culture that's healthy and we want to attend to the culture in the here and now. So my focus was really on, are the conditions there? Are students feeling known, valued, and included in their learning? Are they seeing learning as a place of possibility and a place of joy? Are adults engaging in, in learning in the same ways so that they don't necessarily perceive themselves as deliverers of something, but rather as co-creators of experiences with students? When those elements of culture are there, everyone thrives. And there's, there's a dynamism and a living, breathing feeling to school that just isn't there in schools where we're sort of trudging through the old mill of how things get done. Stephanie, I'm interested, you you mentioned early in the book, you talk about, and I think it was a really clear and a, and a very important distinction between planning and strategy. And I think it's just a classic, um, you know, the number of times school plans, school development plans, whatever they are, and, and then there's that confusion between what the two meet. But then there's also that very famous meme that's run around which says culture eats strategy for breakfast. And you yeah. just made mention of, of culture there. So I'm interested in how you see the two fitting together. I, I think culture is strategy, right? I, I'd, I'd actually say that they're, they're really indistinguishable because at the end of the day, whatever you've described on paper to be your strategy, it may or may not be your reality because what you do every day and how people live your, your institution is really your strategy, whether you want it to be or not. So to me, culture is the manifestation of your, of your real sense of purpose, your theory of change or impact, if that's how you want to describe what you're doing. And it's the evidence of how you do what you do in order to affect the, the outcomes that you want for learning and for students and for educators as well in, in that process. So I think culture is really where it happens. And I think about, you know, and I distinguish it from climate, although I think they're very important. I think climate is how people feel in a school and culture is how things get done. And I think both things are really essential. And if you're not attending to them, it's very hard to achieve a visionary strategy because the culture is where the work happens and the work is what advances you towards that vision of success. So we, we, we can't decouple them in any way. So do you think your comment about about planning strategy and now culture, I often wonder whether that comes back to the fact that people see plans as being very concrete, you know, step one, step two. It's, as you said, it's larger reporting or a compliance process that people are going through. To the other extreme, culture is very, can be very nebulous mm-hmm. and, and not necessarily as tangible or concrete and therefore people often stray away from their intent in that area. How, how have you seen that play in schools and what have you seen as effective to impacting on culture? I think the best way to really examine culture is to ask community members to really interrogate the practices, the traditions, 
the structures that live and breathe in the schools because those are what manifests the culture. And there is a, if there's a deep exploration of what is it that we truly value? What is it that we really believe we want for ourselves, for our students? And then when we think about that sense of purpose, that want for those, for students, for learning, for our adults, and then we look at the structures and the practices and the traditions and the things that actually shape how we work, we can ask ourselves, are these structures, practices, and traditions actually acting in service of what we value? And when we have those hard conversations, sometimes they're not so hard. Sometimes it's very obvious. We say, of course, that's not in service, of, or of course it is. But it, that is the entry point into an examination of alignment, right, inside the school. And to me, that's where strategy happens. It's where we, we become very intentional about bringing those practices, those actions, those behaviors, sometimes it's a mindset, bringing them into alignment with where it is that we want to go and what it is that we value at our core. And um, those are hard conversations to have in schools, but to me, they are, the, they, are, they are the essence of strategy and they completely humanize the work um, in a way that transcends off the page and off a plan. A plan is a checklist of things to do, but this is a real conversation about what brings it all to life inside a school, I think. So I think it's interesting because your book really is a roadmap. Uh, I think you call it a journey. And a part of the journey or the, one of the beginning parts of the journey is, is what you just talked about. And I think you said that we need to be anthropologists in right. terms of, of looking at, you know, where we've come from and, and who we are. What's your sense in terms of school's intentionality in general to do that work? I mean, in our work, most of the schools that I work with, I don't get the sense that They've really put that time and effort and really dug into that history very much. Culture is kind of just something that evolves without a lot of intentionality, it seems, in a lot of places. So what is, what is the impetus, do you think, for people to all of a sudden become those anthropologists? I mean, what, what do they need to be asking themselves in order to begin to do that work that it doesn't seem like a lot of places do just because it's a good thing to do? Yeah, I think that's a really hard question. And I think that draw an analogy to my executive coaching practice. When I'm coaching a leader, one of the things that is core is a belief in the individual that I'm coaching and, and a conviction that he or she is willing to enter that relationship and examine it. And I think a school that truly wants to change and do the work has to have that willingness. And if the willingness isn't there, it's a very hard road to follow because it's somebody who wants to just sort of stay on the path they're on. But schools that are deeply interested in improving, changing, transforming, whatever word it is that they wanna use. It, schools that are really interested in affecting change, particularly with respect to the student experience. When you talk to them about listening and really getting down where the specific knowledge is and the specific knowledge lies with your students and with your faculty and with your staff, it suddenly becomes very logical to them that they have to do it. Then the next hurdle is, oh, I got to do this. And it takes time and it takes uh, patience. And then you have to synthesize a tremendous amount of input. So to really undertake a process like this in earnest actually takes a lot of work. But as you do it, you build an awful lot of muscle for the journey. And you start to engage people you start to engage them in a dialogue about what the future can be. 
So you double, you, you, there are multiple benefits to listening because they are, they are the beginning of a dialogue that I hope continues forever inside your community. Do you, do you think that that work also uncovers why they want to change? I mean, I, my sense again is that when we start working with schools or when we have people come into change school and they start talking about their stories and we'll ask them, well, why, did, why are you doing this? Why are you engaging in this conversation? Why are you starting on this journey? Whatever, you know, however you want to put it. And a lot of them don't have a great answer to that. I mean, a lot of them kind of say, well, you know, we need to do something different. Well, why do we need to do that? Well, because the world is changing. I mean, there's lots of different answers to that. Do you have a sense, do you have a sense that there is a better answer to that why question for those schools who then get into this process and really commit to the process to go through it? That's a great question, um, because I think it can be different in different environments. And I think the, um, the, the spectrum or the depth of change in, is, it can also vary from environment to environment. You know, some cultures are sort of naturally more dynamic and um, innovative and entrepreneurial in schools, and other schools are much more static in their cultures and very entrenched. And so the why can really be different from place to place. And the external or internal pressures that are driving the why or motivating the why can be very different. It could be political pressure. So every context is unique, but understanding where the pressure is coming from is really helpful because I think sometimes there's a lot of resistance that you don't see if there isn't a compelling why. And if there isn't a why that has value to those who are going to implement. Right. right? Um, and often we stage the why in sort of these big ideas about what must be and what the future is going to be like and what maybe matters 10 years from now for my fourth grader. <laughs> but we're right. not in the here and now of my fourth grader and we're not in the here and now of what do I have to do every day in order to do my job. And I think we have to toggle between those two things in a dialogue that allows educators who are actually gonna move the needle inside schools to have a say in what it, how it looks in a in moment to moment for them. I think they, they sometimes feel very disconnected from the big sort of meta moves that schools make. Um, and they don't have a lot of ownership for how it actually gets executed or how it actually shows up for them in right. practice. And they find ways to kind of work around it as a result. And do you think the lack of that depth of an understanding or an articulation of the why also gets in the way of bringing the wider community on board? It, it, it strikes us often where we, we're used to communicating to the broader community and I include parents, but also, you know, the wider community that support the school systems. And we often think about them in a very singular way. We don't really try and embrace them in the conversations, particularly around you know, change. And therefore, they're not clear. We're using our language to our people in our little chamber, and often it's between faculty, rather than understanding the dialogue with parents has to be often a, a bigger, a larger one, and embrace language that they, they are familiar with rather than that we're comfortable with. I think that's so true. And I, and I also think that um, it's not communication out to sell the why to everybody. I think the more effective movement inside a community for school is it is in the dialogue, right? Yep. Parents have very real concerns and they are emotional and invested in their children. Yep. And it's, it's profound for them. Educators are coming through the lens of a professional sort of practice <clears throat> that they've cultivated in their lives for a very long time. The intersections sometimes aren't obvious until we go into dialogue with each other. And so I think that 
we all have to learn here and understand and then find where are the common values that we share, right? At the end of the day, in a, in a real conversation between a student, an educator, and a parent, for example, we will ultimately all come to a place where we agree that we just want a healthy, happy outcome, right? And then we got to peel backwards from there. What is that look like? And when a parent can hear about a student's experience directly, that's what I, why I love student-led conferences, for example. I think those are moments when teachers see what's happening, parents see what ha what's happening, and a student sees what's happening, and that's a micro version of that larger community dialogue we have to have. And so often we approach the communications process as a telling. We're going to go out in the community and explain to them why the change has to happen. Then we're going to go to teachers and explain to them why the change has to happen. Instead of entering a dialogue framed by a question that we all then unpack together and, and, and begin to talk about how we're going to do this. But if that's messier, harder work. And it takes too, too long, right? It takes a lot longer than just saying, let's just figure it out between the four of us and then we'll just go tell people what it is. Right. But, but I'll argue that it takes less time in the long term, yeah. right? You got to go slow to move fast. I think it was uh, Dan Heath who said that. You got to go slow right. to move fast. In the end, if I don't take the time to do that five years from now, I will not have affected much change. If I take the pain up front and go slow and really do this work for the first three years, I'll move the needle a lot faster in the next two. So if you take a five-year time horizon in a school or an entire system and think about it that way, which outcome do you want? And I know in change school, when we, when we start to get, get into these conversations and we tell people, you know, you're probably talking about five to seven to 10 years, they all go, what? I mean, <laughs> we go, well, you're talking about a long-term process here because you have to build the capacity, right? You have to you build help the people. Capacity. Like what Bruce said, you have, to have, you have to develop a common language. You have to really engage in these conversations in some, in some pretty deep ways. So it is a very time-consuming process that I don't, I don't think a lot of people realize that. Well, and the, and the thing that I often offer people when they object to the time is the process and the time that it takes doesn't preclude you from good covert action. So as you're going through this process, you start doing things. You give people permission to do local, small-scale experiments. We're going to do peer-to-peer -peer critique in our classroom. We're going to exhibit our work this month to a larger audience than just the class. Small scale experiments. You allow that to happen. And there, becomes a, there comes a time when suddenly everyone looks at that and it's a new practice by and large, but it, but it worked. And suddenly it's not so new and controversial anymore. You didn't necessarily ask permission. You didn't necessarily go out with some big flag to say, we're gonna do this now. You just sort of, you brought it in, you tried some things, you learned, slowly it takes root, and the next thing you know, it's there. So five years may seem like a long time, but there's a heck of a lot you can get done in five years. Do you need a vision in place to try those small changes and to, <clears throat> to really, excuse me, test them out? Because wouldn't, if you didn't have a vision, if you didn't have some coherence around the direction that you were going, probably wouldn't know if those experiments are moving you in that direction, right? Yeah, I think, I, I think it's a, it's, it's yes, it's both and. I, I think that vision forms as you start to do some of that experimentation, but I do think that you need a, a general sense of vision and you, you've got to somehow describe where you think you really want to go and why.
I, I sort of, I use the metaphor, it's like you have to create a frame that everyone can then paint in. And when you start painting, you might make corrections. The artist makes corrections as they paint, but the frame is what holds them. And I, and I do think that, that vision provides frame. And that doesn't mean that vision can't become clearer. It can't be, become more distilled. It can't become more specific um, as time goes on. But there has to be something that everyone can kind of turn their heads and look towards and understand the why of what they're, otherwise it's willy-nilly experimentation, which has its place, but probably is going to frustrate most systems. I'm sort of interested that you raised that because I think that's, as, as we, we all know, it, that, that um, piloting, testing, trying out thing can become so random and scattered and unsustainable and, and doesn't have, as Will was saying, doesn't have any coherence to it. But I like that the notion that you put there about having a, a sort of vision frame in which people can have the freedom to explore ideas. Um, you talk about prototyping and testing change, though, and can you talk a little bit about that notion of incrementalism as opposed to the big shifts that you, you might see? There's always been this, uh, I'm not going to say dichotomy, but, it, you know, some people will say you've got to make the big, you've got to, you've got to make the big steps to get to where you want to go. Obviously, I mean, I had a number of conversations with, with Seymour Papert in that space. He was certainly someone who said incrementalism will never get you there. But on the other hand, your notion of the way you're talking about those small covert shifts also is, is, is definitely a way in which you will get there. Can you just talk a little bit about how you see that incrementalism fitting into some of the bigger shifts that you think are necessary? I think that the, the big shift is building sort of a, a, a strong sense of commitment for the frame, for the vision, right? right. That's where you yep. make a big shift. And you got to go out loud, proud, and strong on that. And I think that's where leadership is essential. That's where a board and governance is essential. You need a unified sort of collective uh, supportive body that says, yes, this matters to us. You know, whether that vision is framed in the, in, the, in the terms of the portrait of the learner or the graduate that you imagine, or whether that vision is framed in terms of the design principles that you want to drive education and your culture going forward. I mean, there are a lot of ways to articulate that that and at different schools find different ways that feel right for them. But I do think that that's the big shift. And then the small shifts are the shifts within that help you learn. Acknowledging the reality that we're working with young people who have to navigate the here and now. We're designing for a future where we hope college admissions will also adapt and the expectations we have that children must go on in this lockstep process might open up and we'll start to reframe the possibilities for young people. We'll find new ways of assessing and providing evidence of their accomplishment and what they do. But as we navigate the reality of where we are in space and time, we have to, we have to think about what, what is low risk and what is really high risk for this kid and this, this learner. And I think that's where the incremental pieces really can help. I do believe that there are local small changes in practices that everybody in a system can, can try that will get them towards a new understanding of what learning can look like. A single better day in a classroom for a kid goes a long way. And those small things very quickly can add up to a new sense of what it means to walk in and engage with learning every day if those small practices start to really take root. 
Um, I also think we have to account for the fact that, you know, asking professionals to make wholesale changes overnight in what is their area of expertise is a bit um, audacious. Uh, and I think that there is a, there is a partnership in, with our faculty and our staff and all the people who work in our systems. And we have to acknowledge that they too need time to understand how, how and why am I doing this? What's going to work? What do I know at my core that I, I, I don't want to throw away? And how do those conversations between us, you know, help us to learn as we go? So I think the incremental has a role here. And I think it gives people gives you, you, you can get points on the board, you know, get some points on the board and then let the score <laughs> eventually get higher. Yeah. Um, but it helps, it helps. And it doesn't exhaust the system the same way. Just a quick pause in our podcast to remind you that if you haven't already taken our 10 principles for schools of modern learning audit, you might want to consider it, especially if you want to get a clearer sense of where your school stands in relation to hundreds of other schools from around the world who have already taken it. And importantly, if you want to get an even clearer sense of what schools who are well down the road to creating modern learning experiences and environments are already doing. The audit is built on 40 benchmarks that will in and of themselves challenge your thinking and your practice. And if you take the 10 minutes to complete it, we'll immediately send you your score and some first steps that you can take to close some of the gaps that you may have. I promise you it's a great way to start to identify the work you need to be doing. Just head on over to modernlearners.com audit. That's modernlearners.com audit. And start learning what you can do to move your school forward tomorrow. So that, that kind of leads into uh, one of the, the quotes that I picked out um, from your book. So we reference Ron Heifetz from Harvard quite a bit yep. as well. But you have this one quote, and I think you worked with Ron at one point, or you studied with him. But I studied, um, yeah. That yeah. was one of my significant learning experiences. I bet. Ron I bet. class. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have a quote that says, although schools are great at meeting technical challenges, they are not set up to effectively confront adaptive challenges. That is, those that are new and do not have knowable solutions at the outset. In order to meet adaptive challenges, your organization needs to be facile, willing to learn, and ready to innovate. And that was the distinction that HIFITS made in terms of the types of changes some you can just bring someone in and they'll kind of fix it or change it for you. But others, others, there is no such, you know, guru or book or whatever else that's going to show you how to do that. So you kind of were touching on this in your last answer, but I wonder what you think some of the most, the, the most difficult adaptive challenges are for schools who really do want to move to a different place, no matter how long it takes, who have a, you know, create a different vision, um, what, what are some of those barriers that kind of get in the way that take most, the most time to work through? Yeah, I, I think that um, the biggest adaptive challenge are the assumptions that we operate with in our understanding of what school, what the purpose of school is and what school looks like and how it gets delivered. And I think we have some very, very core assumptions. So for example, when we, when we do work in schools, one of the first sort of embedded assumptions that comes up very, very quickly, and, and, and we can all understand it and we can respect it is, but what if kids don't learn X, right? That, that, this, never, comes up. that never comes up in our conversations. <laughs> I'm shocked to what hear that. Johnny <laughs> big about the war of 1812. Like right. 
way we need to learn it. We have assumptions about what we're supposed to learn. We have assumptions about how that happens. And we have assumptions about what, how it is that we go to school, right? You know, we get the summer off, we go back, then we, you know, we, we have just, all, there's structures that we, there's just all these assumptions. And so much of it is embedded in our own experience. So we have an emotional attachment to those things, right? right. So we have fear of letting go of what we know. We have nostalgia even about it as parents. And as students, we want, we want a road, you know, students want a roadmap. They want, they want some sense that they're doing what makes sense. And this is all that anyone has been able to ever offer them. That's their frame of reference. I think that's where the adaptive challenges are. How do we free ourselves to imagine a campus that maybe doesn't, isn't, doesn't exist? And that learning happens because we walk out in the morning and perhaps we go and we work in the local library or the local, you know, we, we use the community as our text on one day. And then on another day we gather and we use something else as our text. Um, or what, what does it look like to go to school year round? What does it look like to think about school in a non-linear way? You know, who's to say that at age six, these are the five things I need to know. Um, but we live with, you know, we live with the very obvious structures and the not so interesting, not so obvious structures. And I think it becomes so limiting, particularly for schools that are suffering under financial stress in the process. I was going to just dig, dig onto that and say, because I think you've, you've really got to the heart of that when you talk about those assumptions. But can you talk a little bit about how you start exploring or testing or challenging those assumptions in a dialogue, for instance, with faculty, as opposed to a broader dialogue with the, with the community. Because, you know, with faculty, there's obviously a more immediacy connection with a lot of that and the familiarity they have with it and their rationale and their emotional attachment to it is yeah. often very, very different to that which, for instance, parents might have. Absolutely. And they, you know, I mean, imagine a, a, a really, for example, a mathematics teacher who, who lives in, who thinks math is the most beautiful thing, right? I mean, I think literature is the greatest thing in the world. And there are poets that I, you know, I could bore you to death about, but I think they're exciting. And, and I'll submit to you that that's wonderful, that I think it's exciting. And it's wonderful that that math teacher thinks it's exciting. But we tend to forget that that is actually not our first purpose. Our first purpose is to is, is to engage with a learner and find a way to let that learner come into this subject matter and make something of it for themselves that they can use later on. And I think that our first assumption is that there are, you know, that, that by, um, by assuming that if you have all the subject matter expertise, that's all we need to get someone to the next step in their own learning is, is a faulty assumption. And the best way to do that is to have conversations with people about their own learning experiences when they're kids. The, the best way to, to convert a parent or an educator is to actually take them back to their own childhood and examine with great honesty where their deepest learning experiences were, where they had experiences that actually transformed them, set them on a path, you know, and, 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 and meet them where they are. What actually set them on fire to, to mathematics? And then have them have a conversation with someone who was set on fire in some other place and develop purpose and a sense of um, deep um, understanding about themselves and the world through some other vehicle. And then you start to see that there are conditions in each place 
that are what really matter. And then we can have a conversation about why those conditions are the first things we work on rather than the content itself. That is a point of view, but I think that you can't get there without asking people to examine their own experience first. I think we look at that and say, that's common sense. I mean, yeah. you know, one, of, one of the things that we do is we, we, we do similar work in that we're, we're trying to get people to articulate, well, what are the conditions that are required if you want to learn something really powerfully? And people will always say, well, you need to be passionate and you need time and you need to be, you need to have choice and agency around it. You know, it's not, it's not constrained by age or subject matter, any of that stuff. I mean, they, they do a great job of listing all those conditions. And then we say, well, which one of those exists in classrooms, you know? Right. Like, How oh, oh yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. right? So, so much of it seems that narrative that you were talking about, you know, in terms of the adaptive challenges, so much of that narrative just doesn't really make a lot of common sense when you kind of peel back the layers of it. But then you get to the point where people feel this real angst about changing it anyway. They look at it and they go, they go, yeah, you're right. It doesn't make a lot of sense to do it this way. But it's like this heavy lift to even think about um, creating a different vision, going into the community, you know, whatever, the, a lot of those things that you mentioned. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you, I, I mean aside from getting them tapped into their own learning and helping them to understand the, the sense piece of it, do you have any other strategies for them, for, for people to maybe um, um, assuage their fear about yeah. the next step? Because I think a lot of it is fear after that, right? right? So I think the next step is once you've, once you've got them feeling and thinking about it differently, right? You start with that mindset. And once you've got them feeling and thinking about it differently, and then they're saying, okay, great, like I'm with you, but there's no recipe for this that I know. I think Johnny still has to go through boop, 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 and then take five APs, right? <laughs> then you say, okay, let's, let's actually do some research. Let's, let's, you know, data is the salve, right? <laughs> People feel better when they have data. And if the data are indicative of something different, it makes it easier to then make, make, take the next step because it gives them comfort that there's some evidence that maybe this will work. So what we do in schools is we actually go and collect data. We, we go into schools and we say, talk to us about when your child, or if we're talking, and we, we interview students and survey students equally, um, just in the same way, talk about when learning is most powerful for you at school. What, what do you take away? We talk to graduates and ask them the same question. Um, and when you have a, you know, a really nice sample size of parents, of students, of educators, of alumni, of graduates, who can tell you where the most powerful experiences happened and how they can, and, and ask them to give you um, a, a, a evidence of how it has helped them be successful as they've moved on, suddenly you start to see the through lines. You can code that data. It's, there, these are qualitative responses. You can rank certain things, right? You can say, where were your most significant experiences across these elements of program? And you can do that very specifically, but then you can ask them to tell the stories behind it. And if you take the time to do that research and really um, code that data, you invariably find through lines. You invariably discover where the magic does happen 
and it becomes very clear and it allows you to then say you know there are assets here in our in our curriculum in our program and the things that we're doing maybe they're on the edges often we discover that they're happening in extracurriculars for example they're happening in clubs. They're happening because somebody took a bunch of kids who were interested in robotics off and they are doing the most magnificent work and they're doing it on top of their six classes that they take every day. Rather, you know, and that becomes then the conversation of, okay, we're starting to see it. We see evidence of it. And oh yeah, you're right. Those kids, that kid just won a Google prize. That kid just, you know, we, we've had this experience. And then there's this sort of light bulb moment like, well, what if we brought that into the core? What if we started to think about how the things that we're doing there can be brought in? And it allows schools to work with the strengths and the assets they already have and go deeper with it. But you can't get there without that research. And that's part of the listening work. That's part of the anthropological work. I mean, I'm interested in, in that whole approach uh, for, for a number of reasons, Stephanie. I think. I think also uh, along the way people go through that those steps and and then they sometimes lose momentum in the process and if it isn't ongoing and continuous that's when you can really see things get difficult because you're always going to have uh, new participants in the community be they parents or wider you know teachers and they always have to be reminded of why you're doing what you're doing what the outcomes are and it isn't just as you're saying it's a long-term process it's something you have to keep reinforcing along the way I was also interested by the way I don't know whether you know Genevieve, Genevieve Bell that okay. she was she's an anthropologist who's actually uh, was employed by Intel as one of their senior research people and it was her anthropological background that attracted them to their work. And uh, in mm -hmm. fact, she's actually a South Australian by coincidence, but um, I was intrigued in that overlap. I think people often don't see the connection, but you certainly have you know, identified it within the book. Um, can I just take a, a bit of a shift and, and I just wanna look at another piece of work you mentioned, and that's around design thinking. Yes. And, and of course, you know, as we know, the whole design thinking process become very popular, not just in schools, but also in business. Why do you think that's the case? What do you think it is about design thinking that offers so much for schools in this in this space? I, I think schools like they like they like they like formulas. They like models. They like a process. They like a frame. Right? Um, schools are they love frameworks. They love rubrics. They love and and so by the way do businesses. You know I spent a long time on the for profit side. Uh, before I entered education, and it's the same thing. We've seen all the sort of, you know, we went from, you know, the lean, you know, we went from total quality management to business process reengineering to the lean startup to, <laughs> um, you know, it, there's always sort of a way of taking what is sort of basic fundamental things that we know are right to do and packaging them. And I think IDEO, David Kelly, did that with design thinking. You know, he took process that John Dewey talked about, in, a, in essence, not so different from what John Dewey or Jean, you know, Piaget noted, and said, if we go through these steps, we can innovate, we can build new knowledge, we can build new understandings, we can create new solutions. And he put it in a way that made it accessible for people. And that's what I think the beauty of it is. I also love that it really highlights listening. I love the empathy piece of it. I love the connection to social emotional learning and the fact that it's a framework where educators can really talk about developing those other skill sets that are that 
that I would say if are, are as important, if not more important than some of the traditional academic skills we've, we've championed in education over, the, over history. Um, design thinking creates a space for that. So it frees teachers to be learners and, and anthropologists and it frees students to do it. So I think it's been very powerful for that reason. The other thing is it, it's a place to collect data. You know, that's one of the big arguments that, you know, you're either, you're either measuring things or you're not in schools. And I don't think it's binary, right? I, I do think we, there are things to measure. And I do think there's, there are places to seek evidence. And I do think that helps sustain, to your point, these things that lose momentum, lose momentum because we want one single measure or we haven't figured out how to measure it. Um, but the process gives you a way to measure to some degree, right? And to really assess progress. Um, so I actually think that the conversation about data shouldn't be eliminated in favor of you can't measure this, but rather reframed um, and rediscussed. What, it, what, what are data that are useful? And um, yes, let's use it. Let, let's use it to sustain our work. You're on mute, man. Yeah, I know. So that, that's one part I'll edit out right there, right? So here we go. <clears throat> so well, Stephanie, yeah. you that we'll try. We'll just, we'll get, it didn't never happen. Okay. Um, so Stephanie, you, you write in the book about um, things that schools should stop doing, things that schools should continue doing, and things new things that schools should do. I mean, sometimes I've heard the, that framed as you've got the baby and you've got the bathwater and you've got some fresh water, right? What do you, you're going to keep the baby, right? You're going to throw out some of the bathwater and then you're going to add some new stuff. But whatever, however you want to, way you want to articulate that. I mean, if, if you had uh, one thing for each one of those things, what's one thing that schools should stop doing just in general? And I know this is your opinion because it's going to vary from school to school, but yeah. what's one thing that you think schools really probably need to look at that and go, yeah, we just can't do that anymore. That's probably not a great thing to do for kids. What's one yeah. thing that you continue doing? And then if you had one kind of thing that you'd say, let's, you should try this because this is something that, that would get you on the road, what would that be? So stop is often the other side of start. So let me say this. Schools need to stop adding on the next thing they've decided they need to do for kids. They need to stop adding it on top of what they already do. If it really matters, figure out how it fits inside the core. They always put it on top. So, you know, wellness is a good example right now. I think schools are doing a really good job. Many schools are talking about the, the physical and emotional well-being of students, but then they program it. It becomes a curriculum that you take on top of everything else. It needs to be inside the core. We need well students in chemistry or whatever it is that they're doing. So stop adding it on as an other thing to do and start figuring out where it fits and then taking away what is, um, what, is, what is precluding you from doing it, right? The same thing, a lot of this happens with um, multicultural work, global work, cultural competencies. You know, it gets layered on as another thing to do rather than asking teachers to say, where can this be embedded? Where right. can it be integrated? right? Stop making teachers add it on as yet another box that they have to check with another strand of work. So stop adding on, start integrating, continue, continue to your level best 
and do it as well and as deeply as you can. Make it better every day. Continue to know, value, and include your students in their own learning. I think it's a great, that's a great uh, stopping point. Um, that's, this has been a great conversation. 45 minutes has just flown by. Um, but uh, really, really love the conversation. And I really enjoy your book because it is so practical. And it, it does, like I said before, give people a path that they can go through. That's not to say that it's necessarily easy to go through that path. But certainly, if you're looking for a frame or if you're looking for some structure for the conversations, I think it does a great job of doing that. So. Really appreciate you taking the time today and um, sincere best wishes on your work moving forward. Thank you so, so much. Thanks very much, Tiffany.